Welcome to Kaya, the college and young adult ministry of Midtown Baptist Temple, a ministry seeking to pursue a deeper faith in Jesus Christ through God's Word, fellowship, and prayer. Good morning, everybody. Good to see you. I'm so glad to be with you this week. Um, I think that the retreat is turning out to be everything that we ask the Lord for it to be. Um, there's a lot of lives uh, in this room and a lot of lives changing, a lot of decisions being made. And I'm so very grateful for that. We're going to pick up where we left off yesterday with this idea that both in the passages in Revelation and the passages that we're looking at now, uh, there's a phrase that's being used, he who hath ears, let him hear. All right? And uh, we talked about how in Scripture that this phrase is really only used by Christ, and it's only used in Revelation and in the context of a couple of parables in the Gospel. And we talked about how this phrase in particular uh, is basically Christ calling us to take heed, to, to be warned. Thanks, brother. To be warned to listen with particular attention. And that this phrase is intended to be a dividing line, right? That calls us out from nominal Christianity into a deeper faith and a deeper walk. And so I'm hoping that we're picking up on that. And uh, today we're going to be looking at the parable of the sower in Luke chapter 8. So you can go ahead and turn there. And between the Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the phrase, he that hath ears, is used primarily in relation to this particular parable. So it shows up each time in each of those Gospels when talking about the sower. It's a phrase that gets used. And so it's worth us studying. It's worth us considering. It's worth us once again looking at the dividing line, looking at the line in the sand, and considering as disciples whether or not we're willing to go beyond the threshold. A lot of the conversations that I've been having with people this week, I mean, I don't know, if Dan, it's, I'm sure it's the same for Dan and, and Blade, uh, but, but retreat is actually, it's just as refreshing for us, but it's often different because we're meeting with people and talking with people and counseling. I know a lot of you are. And a lot of the conversations, uh, you, I'm hearing people saying that they want to, they want to, but there's a wall. There's something that seems to be preventing them. And the question is whether or not we're going to have the faith necessary to proceed regardless of the things that seem to be holding us back. Right? Those things that tether us and bind us and hold us back, those little pet sins, those little pet thoughts, those anxieties, those, those forms of laziness, that lack of discipline, those things that hold us back. Are we going to continue to proceed until those chains just break under the weight of God calling us to go deeper? That's why we all love that song, Oceans, right? I mean, we are to go deeper, and as we go deeper, God is faithful to see us unchained from the baggage that we're all carrying around. The question isn't whether or not, how do I, how do I figure out how to break the chains? The question is whether or not you're going to continue to go deeper in your faith and let God break those chains in his own time and in his own will. So this particular parable was preached on the Sea of Galilee, and like we talked about yesterday, uh, there was a multitude gathered. In all of these contexts, we're talking about congregations of people. And in these parables, in these stories, what we see is that multitudes, thousands of people thronged around Christ to hear him speak. And so this is another one of those instances. 
Now, this case in the Sea of Galilee, he goes out into a ship, and he stands at the bow of a ship. It's often referred to as a pulpit, which I love, right? One of the terms for the bow or the edge of, uh, of a ship is called the pulpit. I like to believe that's because of Christ. I didn't really look into it. But this is where Christ preaches, on the bow of the ship. He's out on the water, and he's talking inland to the people that stand around. And in the, in the, in, in the Gospel of Mark, the crowd is referred to as a great multitude. And they sat around the sea as he taught his doctrines through the means of parable. And we're going to look at this story today, and then we're going to unlock the keys to this story. And we're going to consider what it actually means. Once we've decided that we want to be a disciple of Jesus Christ, what does that actually mean for our lives? What does that actually mean for our faith? And what does that actually mean for the labor of our hands? You understand? Okay, so let's let's pray. And then we'll get into it. Cool? I'm parched. So. Thanks, Micah. You're the man. Everybody know Micah? Micah's. Micah's one of the guys that's kind of, he's still, was it? You're still, you're what? You've been here for a year? A year? Now, we got a lot of guys just like Micah. I know in all of the, the fellowships and all of the churches, new people. New people to retreat. New people getting discipled. It's pretty amazing. Micah is a good dude. There's a, there's a lot of loving faces that I've got to meet this week. I'm really grateful for that. I'm going to thank the Lord for that. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, you are so good to us and you're so loving. And you are adding to your church daily such as should be saved. Even testimonies of salvation at this retreat this weekend. And that's so good. And, and we thank you. And that's not because of the eloquence of Dan or I's preaching or the, the wisdom of the counsel that people are giving, it's because your grace. It's because the blood of Jesus Christ is a, is a beckoning power. And it's something that, that every person desires. Every person desires to be, to be lost in the cleansing blood of Jesus Christ. And, and so, Lord, I pray that you would continue to draw people to yourself, that you would draw disciples to follow you, that you would draw your disciples to go further and to, to do the work of evangelism. Lord, we need your help. And um, we, need, we need, all of us need a, a word today. Uh, we need a continued word. We need to build upon the faith that's been growing this week. We need to continue to build that our life and our, and our ministry and our faith would be activated by something. And so help us to see that today in this parable. Challenge us. We ask for that. In the name of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, amen. Luke chapter 8, verse 4. And when much people were gathered together and were come to him out of every city, he spake by a parable, right? And we know that these parables are basically uh, metaphorical stories that Christ presents. They're intended to picture for us a deeper truth. So he spake a parable. Verse 5. A sower, which is like a farmer, right? went out to sow his seed. And as he sowed, some fell by the wayside, and it was trodden down, and the fowls of the air devoured it. And some fell upon a rock. And as soon as it was sprung up, it withered away because it lacked moisture. And some fell among thorns, and the thorns sprang up with it and choked it. And other fell on good ground and sprang up and bare fruit and hundredfold. And when he had said these things, he cried, He that hath ears to hear, let him hear. So he tells this story, 
that no one can make sense of. And then he's like, he who hath the ears, let him hear. Well, that seems a little unfair. I mean, I, I was thinking, if I had friends that talked this way, I would be so pissed all the time. Right? Like, just say what you mean. What are you talking about? Just order from the menu. Gosh, you're embarrassing me, man. We were just talking about fantasy football. When did this become poetry? You know, I've had friends like this. They speak in riddles. You know who I'm talking about. You know who, you can picture the person in your mind. You know. It's not Dan. It's a friend of ours. And uh, they talk that way, and you're like, you're, what? It, but Jesus had a point in doing this, didn't he? There was significance to, to the reason that he taught this way, that he addressed people this way. Because just like in our last passage, he wanted the words that he said to be a dividing line. Because he knew that when he spoke this way, that only the true disciples would follow up. Only the true disciples would be so inquisitive about what he was saying, so desirous to know the truths of Jesus Christ, that they would follow up with him and say, Christ, explain to us what you mean. Because we know that you're not just talking in a riddle. We know that you have a point because you are the Son of God. And we want to understand everything that you have to teach us. And so it was only the disciples, the truest, most devout followers of Jesus Christ, who were persistent enough to hang around and ask him for an explanation. Luke chapter 8, verse 9. And his disciples asked him, saying, What might this parable be? And he, said unto, uh, uh, and he said, unto you it is given to know the mysteries of the kingdom of God. Okay, now I want to point this out. and we're not, This isn't going to be the focus of what we're talking about today. But because they asked and they wanted to know, they wanted that intimacy with Jesus Christ, he says to them, unto you are the mysteries of the kingdom of God. It's for you that I'm going to give you greater truth, and it's to you I'm going to commit the kingdom of God, the mystery of the kingdom of God. And if you know anything about Scripture, and you've been around long enough, you've learned that when Christ is talking about, or Scripture is talking about the kingdom of God, it's in reference to this idea that God is building a spiritual kingdom here on earth. That he is desirous to win souls, that he is desirous to gather all the nations together, that we all might worship Jesus Christ, that we might all come to salvation. And this is his work in the world, is building the kingdom of God. And so you can see in Acts chapter 1, as you study Acts chapter 1, the very last thing that he's talking to his disciples about, he spends 40 days with them after his resurrection. He's reminding them of the things of the kingdom of God because he's going to set them loose into the world and they're going to be, just like Dan reminded us of, ye of yesterday, they're going to be the ones to turn the world upside down. And they're going to do that with a kingdom of God message. So when they come to him and they say, as disciples, listen, as disciples, it's not just passive fans of Jesus Christ, as disciples, they follow up with him, they go backstage, if you will, and they say to him, Jesus, you've got to explain this to us, we have to know, and he says, it's unto you that are committed the things, the mysteries of the kingdom of God, and that's the same for you. For those of us who are willing to go backstage with Jesus Christ, for those of us who are willing to go deeper, for those of us who are committing to cross over the dividing line and enter into true fellowship with him as real followers of Jesus Christ, anywhere you go, I'll abandon all things. I want to know you. Please show yourself to me. 
It's for those people that he commits the work of the kingdom of God. And that is what our parable is about. That's what this is about. But to others in parables that see, says, but, but to, the, to the others in parables that seeing they might not see and hearing they might not understand. And what that means there is that there are some people that hear the parable and they do not desire to go deeper. And hearing, they don't actually hear. Right? He that hath ears, let him hear. Well, they, they, they may have been listening, but they weren't really hearing the truth. And so they were unconcerned. They were unconcerned with going deeper. See, and seeing they might not see, these people were blinded. And that ought not be us. That's the whole point. That's the whole point of these sermons, is that we might not be like the church of Pergamos, that we might not be like the church of Thyatira, that we might not be like the church of Sardis, that we might forego all of that by choosing to go behind the curtain with Jesus Christ and know him deeper and obey his every command. That's the whole point. And so, of course, this is what Christ wanted. He wanted them to ask him this question. It was a setup. He gave them that space when they crossed across the dividing line. Then he began to unfold the truth and clearly explain his purpose in this story. And we start here in verse 11 as he begins to explain. And we need to pay very close attention to what, what we're doing here. Okay, I need you to get all of these pictures down. I need you to understand them because they're, all of them are going to apply to you. The very first thing that he says, now the parable is this. How faithful is Jesus Christ? He wants us to know. Now the parable is this. The seed is the word of God. The seed of the word of God. The gospel message that never changes. And this is crucial to understand. He says the seed is the word of God. The seed never changes. Do you understand that about plant life? Right? I know that there are people that commit to mutating plants and that it's done in a laboratory somewhere, right? And what they do is they, they, they hybrid plants together. They create new, create new genus of plants and all kinds of things. And that's a work, that's a work that men do, right? But I want to say this. Wheat produces after its own kind, doesn't it? The wheat falls to the ground and it produces after its own kind. And very naturally, the seed produces after itself. And listen to me, the seed of the word of God, it never changes. And that's crucial for us to understand. The seed of the word of God, it's never changing. It is what it is for this time and times in past. And just as Jesus Christ is the same yesterday and today and forever, so is the word of life and is not to be contaminated by the cleverness of men. And this goes right back to what Dan was saying yesterday about Pergamos and about Thyatira. It's the mingling, right? It's that mingling. And how we desire so often to, to, you know, we talked about deconstruction, whether you know about that word or that phrase or that philosophy or not. The idea is very simple. The men want the word of God to conform to their own lives, not in the reverse. Yes. They want the word of God to change, to adapt to our culture, versus our culture adapt to the word of God. That's what they want. But the truth is, the seed, it never changes. The seed never changes. The seed, the seed is also what contains the eternal power and the power to change lives. It is not in the eloquence of men. It is not in our labor. It is not in our ability. It is in the power of Jesus Christ through the word, the never-changing word, the eternal word. It contains the power. So without the seed, there is no parable. Without the seed, there is no kingdom of God. There is no objective. There is no purpose. There is no great com commission. 
We do not not function in the Great Commission absent the Word of God. It is the beginning, it is the end. It is the mind of Christ. And we've got to understand that this story and this parable begins there. 1 Peter 1.22 says, Seeing ye have purified your souls and obeying the truth through the Spirit unto unfeigned love of the brethren, see that ye love one another with a pure heart fervently. Listen, being born again. Ah, that's that old John chapter 3 story, right? Of being born again, being saved, being set free, confessing your sin before the all-living God and letting him change you, transform you through salvation. Being born again. Let's not get tired of that word, folks. People despise that phrase, born again. It's backwards. It's old school. Born again. Because that's what's being done. Being born again, not of corruptible seed, but of incorruptible seed. By what? The word of God, which liveth and abideth forever. For all flesh is as grass, and all the glory of man is the flower of grass. The grass withereth, and the flower thereof falleth away, and the word of the Lord endureth forever. The word of God endureth forever. And in that way, in that way, the words of God, this book, bound in leather in particular, transcends time and space and is no different than the rest of the triune nature of our God. This here is inextricable from Jesus Christ. It endureth forever. This is the key. And before we learn and understand our significance in the kingdom of God work, we have to understand that this book is critical. That learning it is critical. That a crucial part of discipleship and the biblical discipleship process is not to be just mentored in good character. Not to be mentored in ministry. Not to learn a philosophy, but to learn the very words of God. That they are on the tip of our tongue at all times. And that what we speak is not of the corruptible, but of the incorruptible. This is the power. We have to understand this. But then there is a second part in our parable. And that is the part of the sower. And Christ explains to us in Mark chapter 4 in this same parable that the sower soweth the word. Okay? There is the seed, and then there is the sower. And if the seed has any hope of growing and multiplying, it requires someone to go to the storehouse to pick up the seed bag and devote time and energy to the dissemination of the seed. There has to be a willing laborer. The work of God requires laborers, and the word itself requires people who are willing to speak. So, you know, a lot of people have made decisions this week, right? A lot of people have said, I want to cross the line. I want to go deeper in my faith. There's a lot of people who said, I want to abandon stuff in, in order to really be a true disciple of Jesus Christ. I've just been playing at it, and I recognize now that I was just a fan. I wasn't a true follower, and I want my discipleship to mean something. And so I'm going to step out, and I'm going to go further. 
You know, one of the things that I've learned about ministry and about decisions like that is that when God calls us to greater leadership or to follow up on decisions that we make, a lot of times we're not fully sure what that means. And so let's just talk for a second about what it means for you to go back to Kansas City, to go back to Tampa, to focus in on your ministry, to get back to Lee Summit. What does that look like once you've made this decision? Well, there's some obvious things. You need to learn the Word of God. You need to grow. Okay, so whatever that means, whatever that means, committing to D2, committing to discipleship, committing to LFBI, learning the Word of God, learning to grow, committing yourself, making a decision about, about God's seed getting in you. Okay, some of you be, might be making decisions about ministry. Okay, so there's all kinds of people in here. Some of you are involved in ministry and some of you aren't. And some of you might be saying to yourself, you know, what I need to do is I'm, I need to make sure that I'm truly committed to living faith. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sign up, and I'm going to be a part of ministry. I've been letting other people serve me all this while, and in that way, I've been kind of just comfortable, comfortable in my faith. It's time for me to step out and to serve, just like I see the other leaders in the church doing. I want to commit myself to that. I know that's the next step. But the one that I believe is the most pressing for all of the disciples in this room, and the one that I believe that Scripture points to the, the most closely for people who have decided to go beyond the threshold is the one that pertains to evangelism. See, Christ didn't tell the disciples when he met them that he was going to make them hospitality leaders. He didn't say, hey guys, I'm going to make you uh, really good at children's ministry. Ready? He didn't tell them that they were going to be awesome on the praise team and that they wanted them to join the praise team. That's not what he said. What he said was, the moment they crossed the threshold, the moment they dropped their nets, the moment they fully committed, uh, the moment they said, I'll abandon all, the thing that we've been grappling with all weekend, the thing that he said was, I'm going to make you fishers of men. So don't get it twisted. Don't get confused. You say to yourself, well, I don't know what the next step is. I was during the worship set. I, was, I couldn't help but look at this thing. Right? Just sitting out here. This is, if, there's one, if there's one thing that represents an entire generation, <laughs> one imagery, one, one picture in my mind that says Gen Z, it's this thing. <laughs> this, these are everywhere, all the time. And you know you're going to kill your grandparents this way. This is literally how a whole other generation of people will die. It's just like this. So you were coming down to retreat, right? And, uh, and you knew that you were going to hear something from the Word of God, and you were anticipating something. But once you heard the preaching from Revelation and things started to click and you recognized, maybe, maybe I haven't truly been a disciple. Maybe I've been comfortable. Maybe I've lost my first love. Maybe I've been mingling with the world. And it's time for me to re repent. And what you did is you plugged yourself in right there. And faith took hold. And it filled you. And you wept, you, you prayed with someone, you went outside and you prayed and you talked and you confessed before the Lord and there was change that was happening in your life. 
And you've recognized that week, this, this weekend. You've recognized that it's time to abandon all, that there's something that God is calling you to. But I want to tell you right now, not every plug fits everything. And if this, if this fits into children's ministry, cool. We need more children's ministry workers. And if this fits into the worship team, cool. We need more people to be on the worship team. But what this faith plug was built for was to reach the world. And all of the abandon and all of the grappling with your fear and all of the anxiety and all of that being dealt with and trusting the Lord is intended that you might go and win souls. And that's hard for you to face because that's way more difficult and that requires way more abandon than what you were ready for. But that's the point. That's the point is to make fishers of men. And here's the thing about sowing seed. Sowing is speaking. And every person that calls themselves Christian, let it be understood that you're obligated to share the gospel of God's words as the primary, the primary vocation of your life. It's the primary vocation. It's the primary responsibility over every other ministry and every other life objective. It's more important than any other thing that you'll ever do is to open your mouth and speak the truth of the eternal God. Romans 10, 14 says, How then shall they call on him in whom they have not believed? And how shall they believe in him of whom they have not heard? This is so simple. People can't believe. The work can't multiply. The movement movement can't continue if we don't determine that we're going to open our mouths and speak words, not our words, but the words of God. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And that ain't me. That's not talking about me. That's not talking about Dan. That's not talking about Blade. That's talking about you. In Scripture, the word preacher is never used as it concerns just the pastorate and and the office of of the bishop alone. When the word preach or preacher is used, it's always intended for the entirety of Christianity, for the entirety of our faith, every individual. The disciple is the preacher, and the preacher is the disciple. They are synonymous. They overlap. They are intended to go together. That's what they do. You are a preacher. And how shall they hear without a preacher? And how shall they preach except they be sent? How will you preach if you don't find a platform to do it? How will you, how will you find the, the, the ears and the souls to speak to unless you're on college campuses, unless you're speaking up in your work, workplace, unless you're going and looking for opportunities? The biggest I, excuse I hear of anyone in ministry, as it concerns evangelism, it's always the same. It's always the same. The biggest excuse is, I've already preached the gospel to those people, and they weren't willing to listen. And it's as though you're saying, well, I ran out of people. 
which is the most stupid thing to say, is the most absurd thing to say, and it's you lying to yourself. It's like a, it's like a, you know, your mom calling you in for school, saying you don't have to go to school because you got the sniffles. It's a bad excuse. What fisherman do you know that's complete, completely satisfied when they don't catch fish? They sit there and they're like, well, they're not biting today. Guess we'll call her quits. Well, what's for dinner? Well, nothing. We didn't catch anything. So I guess we'll just go back to the cabin and star- starve to death. Ain't no fishermen are like that. That's not how fishermen function. They're like, I guess we better go somewhere else and look for more fish. Freaking A. We're, we're so... Laodicean. We're half-steppers. Whoop. This is how we, this is how we, do, we do our Christianity. We dip our toe in, and when it doesn't work right away, we quit. How do you, how, you can't plant churches that way. We got a, peop, a, a group of people who, who chose to give up their entire life and go to Boston in a, in a place that, that, that's completely unconducive to having a job, providing for yourself, tiny little apartments. Life got harder for them. And they went out there, and if they think for a second, that if they go on a campus and they get rejected a few times, they're going to just simply quit? It ain't in them. They can't do that. And the truth is, you can't either. Oh, it's so comfortable being in a big ministry or having a lot of people or looking around and saying, oh, I've got peers, it's good, things are happening, God seems to be at work. They're doing that. I'll do this over here. It's cool. And you are completely unconcerned with the fact that all of Lee Summit is going to hell. That there are 16,000 souls on, on UMKC's campus. Oh, we got Bible studies over there. They're doing the work. They'll be okay. You know, we got plenty of Bible studies. They're doing it. Where's your evangelism at? Where's your dissatisf- uh, dissatisfaction with the work of evangelism? How beautiful are the feet that preach the gospel of peace and bring glad tidings of good things? The third part of the story is the soil. So we've got the seed, we've got the sower, we've got the soil. The soil is the individual. The soil is the hearts of men as revealed in Matthew 13, 19. The soil is the individual here that we come in contact, the exact people we encounter on a daily basis, the people at the grocery store, the people at the gas station, the people in your workplace, the people you know, at the park when you go to walk your dog. We've had amazing opportunities over the last year simply because a lot of the women Bible studies in particular in Kaya are going to parks. Because after COVID, everybody just got outside all of a sudden. And people are used to going outside and the dog parks are packed with people. And some of our Bible studies have just chosen to visit all the parks in the city and see which place the soil is the most, most uh, conducive to the gospel. And it's been working. The soil is, is the individual here, the exact people that we encounter on a daily basis. And I don't want you to forget, the picture goes deeper than that. We don't have time for that. But Adam was made of dirt. So this is both spiritual and literal. People are soil. That's what they are. 
And they're, they're, they're soil that needs a spiritual seed. But it's important to note that in a single field, the soil may vary drastically in a field, producing varying responses to the sowing of a seed. I like to garden. <laughs> I like it. Judge me all you want. I like flowers. I plant a lot of flowers. I like working in my yard. But my yard is my yard. It's what I got. Okay, it's been there a long time. My house is 100 years old almost. So that soil has sat there for a really long time doing its thing. There's been erosion and things like that over the years. The soil changes quite a bit. And uh, I've given a lot of my time to planting grass. Okay? And one of the things that I learned really quickly about my yard is that there's certain places the grass takes easier than others. I have this one flower bed that I've been working on for 10 years. still not where I want it to be. But when I got there, it was jacked up. I mean, it was, it was like clay. It was, it was hard. The soil would crack very easy in August, and it was hard to get things to plant there. But the funny thing about that is if you walk 10 paces another direction or go up on the hill, the soil is just very soft and easy. Just like me, I didn't want to plant anything there. Right? Like, nah, that's no challenge. <laughs> right? So all my flower beds are in the places where they were originally the worst places to plant. But here's the point, is that, is that that's the way our lives are, too, is that we encounter people every day in different places. The soils are different, aren't they? And it's crucial for us to understand that soils are distinct. It's crucial to understand that. These variations in soil are critical to our perspective on evangelism. It's critical for us to consider the types of hearts that we're going to be encountering. And here's the deal. If we understand the soil... If we understand the different types of people, then, then, and only then, we can fully count the cost of what it means to evangelize. Having that perspective is critical. Knowing that some places are just hard to work is really, really important. Because you don't want to get disappointed. You don't want to get blindsided. You don't want to be like that builder who started a foundation of evangelism, but then couldn't finish the job because they didn't anticipate what the cost was. As it concerns evangelism, we've got to count the cost. And that's what he that hath an ear, let him hear, means. Count the cost of doing this work. Consider the difficulty. And that leads us to key point number one. About time, huh? <laughs> key point number one. Every good agriculturist, every good sower, is also a soil expert. Doug Pearson's a soil expert. Okay? He's been studying the soil in India for almost 20 years. Long before he ever got to India, he was studying the soil. He knew where the Christians were. He knew where they weren't. Right? He knew, he knew where it was being fruitful, where the movement of God was. He knew where it wasn't moving. He studied, he studied what would plant well here or there. He studied it out, and then he went and he did it. And then when he got there, he knew that the work would be difficult. And so he moved and adapted based on the soil. The soil spoke to him. 
It gave him all the keys and the clues that he needed to understand how difficult, how hard the work would be. And sometimes he worked hard fields, and sometimes he worked fields that were much easier. But those were deliberate decisions by an evangelist, by a person committed to the work. Are you that way? Do you know the soil? A soil scientist, that's a real job, right? A soil scientist is a person who is qualified to evaluate and interpret soils to determine their agricultural value. Sound, that sounds like a fun job. Some of, some of you might consider that as a career option, just throwing it out there. But if you're going to be a disciple, then you are also an evangelist. And if you are an evangelist, then you should also be a soul, a, a soul scientist. You should be a, a scientist for souls, an expert on souls, a person who evaluates uh, souls to determine whether or not a person's heart is ready to hear the good news of the gospel. That's what you need to be. So let's study the types of soil that we find. Okay? The first soil is the soil of the wayside. So as the disciples imagine for a moment, they're gathered together, right? They've separated themselves from the multitude. They're sitting around with Jesus and they're having this conversation and they're asking him what it means. And he's told them that there's going to be a seed, that there's, someone has to sow that seed. And then he says of the seed, those by the wayside, those seeds that are cast by the wayside, are they that hear. Then cometh the devil and taketh away the word out of their hearts lest they should be, uh, believe and be saved. It's a terrible thing to read. It's terrible. It's sad. What is this describing? See, the wayside means a trodden or well-worn path. I don't know if you guys noticed as we were wa walking on the trail, okay, as you're going up, how hard the dirt was where we were walking. Nothing grows there, does it? Nothing grows there. And in fact, when it rains, like today, it doesn't really make much of a difference. It would take 100 rains to get that soil to loosen up. Because the, the moisture has been refused by all the trotting and how, it, how hard the path has become. It's almost like concrete. It's very, very difficult. And that's what the wayside means. And if you know anything about seeds, seeds that land in hard ground have a hard time penetrating the, uh, the solid soil. And they lack the moisture that makes it necessary for germination to take place. Okay? And that sounds all real geeky and stuff. But it's critical to our understanding. Seed on hard ground blows away. It's stamped out by the drubbing of feet. Or as the parable describes it, it leaves the seed easily available, easily exposed for the fowls of the air to come down, swoop in, and eat up the seed. Even the seed in my yard right now that's supposed to create grass, I see the birds come in, and they sit down, and they, they eat of the seed. That's what they do. That's, that's, that's how they function. And that's the devilish way. That's, that's the objective of Satan, is that when we cast the seed, he's got his devils in wait to swoop in and steal the seed away. It's exposed, and it's easy. This is the devil's delight. Matthew's account of the same parable says something similar. Verse 19 of chapter 13, Matthew 13, 19. When anyone heareth the word of the kingdom and understandeth it not, then cometh the wicked one and catcheth away that which was sown in his heart. This is he which received seed by the wayside. 
So the wayside soil is this. This is what it is. Soil expert, you ready? The wayside soil is the hasty and ignorant soul who's captivated by the world. See, the wayside is a part of the field that has not been prepared to receive the truth. No one's gone to do that work. If I went out with a tiller on that path out there up the side of the uh, the hill there, and I took a tiller out there, and I worked it, I could turn that path into profitable soil. I could do that. But the truth is they're just paths that aren't profitable. They don't produce. And uh, Satan is a wily opponent. Saley, I don't know Saley. (laughs) Saley sounds bad. Now, Satan is a wily opponent. And many people who you share the gospel with will simply walk away from the things that you share with them. You'll have a conversation with them. You'll come up to them at the park. You'll, you'll have them in class, and you'll have these conversations. You'll go get a cup of coffee, and they will hear what you have to say, and they will throw it away immediately. They will throw it away. And guess what? You'll feel like crap. You'll feel bad. But the thing is, you cannot afford to let this discourage you. See, what is critical for us to understand is that as we preach the gospel, some of it will be trodden down and stolen away. This is a fact. And that leads us to our next key point, number two. Losing seed to the cunning of Satan is part of the risk of sowing. So count the cost. Count the cost right now. I had a very genuine young man at my house last week. And uh, we had a conversation about evangelism. We had one of the Bible studies over. And one of the things that he said is that he was out on campus evangelizing and talking with people. And it went so poorly that he got in his car and he drove home and he said he's been discouraged for weeks over it. It's affected his faith. It hurt him. It made him feel like he was unprofitable, like he was an unprofitable servant. And it's because he didn't have the right perspective. He didn't understand this for all that it is. And so as you're growing in your faith, it's critical to understand that rejection is just part of the gig. People refusing what you have to say, it's just part of the gig. And the moment you get worked up about that and you get sad about that, you get discouraged about that, is the minute you bench yourself. It is critical for us to understand that there will be... And here's the deal. We get to be just like Doug and just like these more experienced evangelists. We get to be just like them, and we get to decide where we're going to plant seed or not. See, in our story, the, 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 the guy is planting seed, and, he, and because the Word of God is plenteous, it's never-ending, it's a fountain of life, you can be a little bit liberal with the seed, can't you? That's the great thing about it. Right? And so you can, you can just throw seed everywhere. And the thing about that is, though, I I bet for sure that any good sower knows that that path, that trodden, that wayside area is not going to produce. And any seed that lands there actually just lands there out of convenience or lack of precision. And what I mean by that is that in your life, you should be very discerning about who you spend time with sharing the gospel. You should think about the soil. You You should be a soil expert. And you shouldn't deliberately plant seed on hard ground. You spend all of your time over here, and the, and the seed and, and the ground is not prepared. you got to know, that's not going to take. Some of you got friends that you've been spending years trying to minister to, 
to the, to the, you know, to, to the lack of ministering where the soil is good, and you spend all your time over here working on hard ground that's unprepared, and you're doing that out of nostalgia, out of love for them, I get it. It could be all the good motivations, but listen to me. That's not what evangelists do. Now, you might work that ground. You might build relationships, but you don't devote all your time to that soil because that soil may never take. And we've got to be prepared for that. We cannot be discouraged. We've got to speak. We've got to be liberal, uh, liberal with the seed, but at the same time, we have to be exacting about where we're going to plant. Next, we have the rocks. He then says, hey, look, they on the rock are they, which when they hear, receive the word with joy. And these have no root, which for a while believe, and in a time of temptation fall away. Um, So, you know, Nick's a new dad. And uh, the thing about being a dad is that you start thinking about things like grass. It's part of being a dad. It's like you didn't ever care about grass. You hated mowing. You hated doing all that stuff. But the moment you become a dad, it's like grass. (laughs) So Nick's learning. He's working. He's working in his yard. Okay. Now, he's got this weird thing at the end of his driveway where there's like a thousand million rocks for like no reason on either side of the driveway. And uh, so earlier this summer, in the spring, really, he started planting grass right there, <clears throat> right over the top of it, like a freaking idiot. <laughs> I mean, and the thing was, that he got grass was, getting, was coming in, and he was, like, stoked about it. And I pulled up to the house, and it took another dad with greater experience to say... <laughs> Bro, that ain't going to work. <laughs> because I knew, I knew that there would come a point in the summer when it got just a little hotter and just a little less moisture, that where that, that seed seemed to be growing, it would get snuffed out like that. It'd be gone. Because the roots can't go down deep. The roots of those little seeds, they can't go down deep past that. And so what Shepard and I did is we hung out and we filled buckets with rocks. And we got a bunch of those rocks out of there. Did the grass grow? Yeah. It ended up growing. We got those rocks out of there. That's what it means when we plant seed on the rocks. See, the thing about rocky soil is that a plant might begin rooting, but rocks prohibit the root from fully establishing itself and becoming mature. And this same way, we see that there are some people who we encounter in ministry who initially hear the preaching of the gospel and receive it with joy, and yet... When under pressure, pressure from old friends, pressures from old habits, pressures from old entertainments, fall away. They fall away due to the stresses associated with following Christ. And guess what? There is rocky soil even in this room. You've been here, and the seeds got planted, and something's sprouting, and you know something's growing. But listen to me. You get back home. And there's a trial, and there's a pressure, and there's an old friend, and there's an old habit, and there's an old entertainment, and all of this is like it never freaking happened. 
It's like it never happened. It's like God never did anything. It's like Hebrews chapter 6. It's like the light shone in. It's like, oh man, this is so wonderful. And then you get in that car and you put on that new Drake album and you start driving home that doo-doo Drake album <laughs> where the dude does, does nothing but cry. Just cry, just cry, baby. Ain't nothing hard about that dude. <laughs> you get in your car and you start driving back to Kansas City and the darkness sets in and it's as if the, the grass never even started growing. And there's some of you in this room right now just like that. And before you get in the car, you better start plucking those stones out of that garden bed or you're going to lose what God's given you. The rocky soil is the, is the soul who retreats under pressure and fear. And a lot of you have fear. You're the generation of fear. So don't lie to yourself until you've got it figured out, that you're confident. Struggle through it. In Matthew and Mark, the stony ground is likened to the ridicule and persecution of a young believer who might experience, that they might experience as the gospel begins to impact their life. We've all seen this in ministry, haven't we? Mark 4.16, the same parable says, And these are they, likewise, which are sown on stony ground, who when they have heard the word, immediately receive it with gladness, and have no root in themselves. And so endure but for a time, and afterward, when affliction or persecution ariseth for the word's sake, immediately they are offended. In other words, when you get home and your family says to you, you're a what? You're a disciple of Jesus? Okay. What kind of crazy cult? Everything is a cult anymore, by the way. I mean, our belief system has only existed for 2,000 years. And you say whatever you want. People throw that word cult around. A lot of, your, a lot of people in our ministry, from their parents, they hear that we're a cult. Like, get out of here. You're a Mormon. Why does anything radical have to be a cult? Okay, fine. I'll be a cult. Call me whatever you want. But see, the thing about that is that people give you a hard time. Family members don't receive your faith. It's, there's pressure there. Yes. And it can hurt. And it's really easy to recede back into your old way of thinking and just to let go. And that's what a lot of people that come into our Sunday schools, that come into our ministry, come into our Bible study, that's exactly how they retreat. Key point number three. Losing seed to the subversive power of fear is part of the risk of sowing. It's part of the risk. It's part of the cost. We've got to count that cost. We've got to see that for what it is. We have to understand that. If we're going to be true followers of Jesus Christ, disciples, and we're going to preach the gospel, we have to understand there's a risk that people's fears will overtake them, and it will hurt us, and we will be tempted to discourage, but we must not. And then there are the thorns. And that which fell among the thorns are they which, when they have heard, go forth and are choked with cares and riches and pleasures of this life and bring no fruit to perfection. Mark 4.18 says of the same portion of the parable, and these are they which are sown among thorns, such as hear the word, 
And the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches and lusts of other things entering in choke the word and, becometh, and it becometh unfruitful. So what is this describing? The thorny soil is the double-minded soil swept away by feel-good. Swept away by feel-good. And so just like the rocky soil, the seed takes, you know, but among it, thorns grow, tares grow, weeds grow. And Jesus says this really interesting thing about the tares that grow among the wheat, doesn't he? And what he says is, let the tares grow, right? Let them grow. Let them grow with the wheat. We, can't, we are having a hard time sometimes deciphering between the wheat and the tares. And so we'll let them both grow, and then we'll, we'll reap the fruit, and we'll kill the unfruitful. We'll destroy it. That was his approach. And that's the th- same thing that's true about church a lot of times. In a congregation like this in ministry at Living Faith, there are people who are thorny people. And a lot of times there's not much else you can do but just let them be Laodicean. Let them just be double-minded in ministry. But the problem about that is that they'll never be fruitful. They'll never be fruitful. And the fruit will grow all around them. And they might even ask themselves, why am I unfruitful? It's because you're sleeping with your girlfriend. Right? It's, it's, because, it's because all you do is consume your mind with trash and you never get in the word of God. It's because you look at pornography more than you look at the word. It's because you can't stop drinking socially. And it's made your soil thorny. And when you look around and you say, man... Why is it that all of these other Christians look like disciples and I don't? I went through discipleship too. Uh, Oh, you went through the program. You went through the program part. You didn't get discipled. Because you love the world. And true disciples don't love the world. They abandon the world. They throw it away. The moment Christ tells them to throw something away, they do it. That's thorny. You know, Jorge, another new dad, also planting grass. <laughs> Early on in the season, he, you know, he killed all the grass. I mean, I am going there. Okay, this is an illustration. I'm not going to stop talking about it, okay? This just feels good to me. So uh, his backyard, he bought a new house recently. His backyard is trashed, Right? Uh, which is like a lot of Hyde Park backyards. It's just unkept. So he kills everything, and then he tills it up, and then he plants seed. But the problem is that the ground was st- still old ground, and not everything died. And so as the grass started coming in, it was looking really good, but the weeds started coming in too. And he reached out to me, and he said, what do I do? And I said, well, <laughs> buddy boy, He's, he's like, the weeds are coming in. Should I, should I fertilize? And I said, no, brother. You can't. Because if you put those chemicals down, it's going to kill the good grass with the bad grass. That grass, that's baby grass. And you've got to take good care of it. So what you ought to do is let the grass come into full maturity. And then once it's come into full maturity, then we'll go back and we'll address the weeds. There are tares among us. There is thorny ground. 
And you've got to count the cost of navigating that. And if you are the thorny ground, if you are Thyatira, if you are Pergamos, if you are Sardis, if you are Laodicean, then take responsibility for your own soil. Because no one else can do that for you. That's between you and the Lord. Ain't nobody can fix you. No program can fix you. No amount of time. I know people in, our, in my ministry, in the college and young adult ministry, leaders that have spent years, hours upon hours, hundreds of hours counseling and investing, and the soil is still just as rocky and as thorny as ever. And the reason is because they want to be. And as we encounter the world, as we encounter the lost world, we will find double-minded people who appear to be in our camp but never were of us. They appear to be with us. They sit in our worship services. They tell you that they're saved. And the truth is, they may not be. Or that the Laodicean has set in. And you've got to trust that to the Lord. And I fear that this one in particular is common even in the midst of our ministries right now this morning. Believers in these very pews, if they were willing to be honest with themselves, would have to confess that they have been double-minded in their faith. From moment to moment, toggling between a spiritual mind and a worldly mind based on convenience and company. Proverbs 22.5 says, Thorns and snares are in the way of the froward. And he that doth keep or protect his soul shall be far from them. Key point number four. Losing seed to the cares of this world is part of the risk of sowing. You invest, you invest, you invest, you cast the seed year after year. You're working the ground, you're working the soil, and there will be thorns. There will be people who are so obsessed with their sinful life and the cares of the flesh and getting that buzz on the weekends or getting an occasional lay or being so lazy that they can't tear their eyes away from video games, so unconcerned with spiritual things that they will be completely unfruitful because they're obsessed with the cares of the world. But there is a fourth type. Verse 15, but that on the, ground, uh, the good ground are they which in an honest and good heart, having heard the word, keep it and bring forth fruit with patience. Mark 4.20 says of the same soil, and they, uh, these are they which are sown on good ground, and such as hear the word and receive it and bring forth fruit, some thirtyfold, some sixtyfold, and some an hundredfold. They multiply. The good ground we know it's the good crown because it multiplies. Isn't that interesting? We recognize the good ground from the thorny ground. We can see the difference because one is fruitful and multiplies. Is that you? Matthew 13, 23. But he that receives seed in the, in the good ground is he that heareth the word and understandeth. Oh, oh, he that hath an ear, let him hear. Oh, the good ground is the person who when they hear that call, they say, I'm listening, Lord. Not the labor of my hands, but yours. 
No, no, I don't want just the words. I want your heart. No, it's not good enough just to come to church. Wherever you would go, that's where I'll go. That's the good ground. And it multiplies. Some even a hundredfold. So key point number five, fruit that remains makes all the risk worth it. Makes it all worth it. All the hurt, all the pain, all the perceived wasted time, the mocking, the ridicule, the family that throws you away. have one fruitful patch of ground among all the soils of your acreage of all the different types and varieties of soil to have one patch of soil that produces is the joy of our lives I've often heard, taught from this passage, that statistically, that like because of the way this works, there's four types of soil. So like maybe like something like 25% of the time, you might bear fruit, which I think is nonsense, and I don't think you can get that from the passage. I would say that 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 differs, doesn't it? It depends on how much soil takes up how much field. You know, and in Laodicea, it's pretty rocky. It's, it's, it's pretty thorny out there. And so, you know, what if, what if one in a hundred seeds took? What if it was that hard? What if one in a hundred seeds took and you had 99 discouraging experiences investing in people? Would you quit? Or would you press on? If you're like Enoch, if you're like Noah, the men that we talked about last year, we talked about Noah, we talked about the righteous remnant, we talked about men like Job, we talked about men like Elijah, if you're men like them, the numbers don't count. It's the obedience that counts. The success is in the obedience. And it is not quantifiable. It is qualifiable. And it comes with a reward that you cannot see, you cannot handle, that you do not understand. It's an invisible work. It's a spiritual work. And one day, you'll know. Whether or not the hearts of men yield fruit is God's business. That's God's business. It's supernatural. It's divine. So unburden yourself with that responsibility of believing that every single person you talk to should somehow repent and fall on the ground and follow Christ. Get that out of your mind now. 
In this particular parable, regardless of what the sower did, the seed grew. Okay, so we're going to look at Mark 4.26 as we close. This particular parable, this one that we're about to read, it's, it's a different parable of a different sower. The seed grew and produced a harvest because something beyond him was at work. Mark 4.26, and he said, So is the kingdom of God, as if a man, this is Christ speaking, as if a man should cast seed into the ground and should sleep and rise night and day, and the seed should spring and grow up, he knoweth not how. This man is working different hours of the day. Sometimes he sleeps through the night. He doesn't know what's going on. There's all these things that are happening in his garden. He's doing everything he knows he, knows he thinks needs to happen. But none of that makes any difference. See, it's as though when he wakes up in the morning and there's a harvest, it's like God did it. It's like his, his labor doesn't even make sense. It seems so simple. A little water here, a little seeding here, but mostly just watching and waiting. And this is the thing that we need to understand, is that at the end of the day, this is the work of God. And he is responsible for all those people that reject and all those people that receive. They are, they are his souls. It is his work. It is his Holy Spirit. It is his conviction. It is his provocation. It's him working behind the scenes. It's him undoing their lives. It's him doing the work that you could never do. And it is so often our natural tendency to believe that what is harvested is dependent on our good efforts, but he is the Lord of the harvest. And he is at work in the unseen. And so what does that leave you with? And that's this last point. He that hath ears to hear. This summarizes it all. Labor hard. Labor wise. And be full of faith. Have you ever seen a farmer? Like a real farmer. Eric, no, you haven't. Get out of here. A real farmer, like not the ones that work for like the big corporation, the farming, you know, the big conglomerate agricultural companies. Like a farmer that's got, you know, 100 acres that he works, you know. He hires in people and he's like actually working. Have you ever seen one of these guys? Like the old school guys, the guys that listen to Willie Nelson. <laughs> these guys are freaking tough. They're tough, tough as nails. And these are men that understand the risk of their profession. Like, how could they stay with it that long when there's so many things up against them? Like the big conglomerate, like the big nominal megachurch down the street or whatever. And it seems like year after year, sometimes there's fruit and sometimes there's not. And somehow there's something inside that guy that tells him, I'm built for this work. I was made for such a time as this. And he goes out into that field year after year and he takes all the risks. I want that to be me.
I want to take all the risks. I don't want to hide the seed away. I don't want to leave the labor for another day. Because the truth is, there is no other day. I don't get another crack at it tomorrow. And this is why, following this parable, Christ says something very simple that's related, very clearly related to what he was talking about. Luke 8.16 says, No man, when he hath lighted a candle, cover it with a vessel, or put it under a bed, but setteth it on a candlestick, that they which enter in may see the light. Nobody lights a candle at all, actually, anymore. (laughs) Fart candles is the only kind of candle that makes it... Oh, I see. Lorena's upset about that. (laughs) They're not for light. They smell good now. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, we don't live in the dark ages, for crying out loud, Lorena. (laughs) They smell good now. They have a different purpose. But no one lights a candle for light anymore unless there's a terrible storm. Even then, flashlights, I mean, right? (laughs) But go with me back in time for a moment. No one lights a candle to simply cover it up. No one works a field only to quit. No one holds the bag of seed only to set it down, to walk away, to plant a different day. It's too hard today. So why do you do that? If we're going to be disciples of Jesus Christ, then we are obligated to preach the gospel. And that will be hard. So we labor hard. And we labor wise. And we labor full of faith. And if you know that you've committed yourself to being a disciple, but you've not yet entered into the work of evangelism, and you know that when you get home, your primary responsibility, as much as it might be to sign up for discipleship or to join a ministry, it is your your primary focus is to go to your friends and family and tell them what you believe. It's time. It's time. And so I want to invite the worship team to come up. We'll do a short set, worship set. But once again, we'll have an invitation. We're not tired of the invitations yet, are we? We do them after every time... We preach because there's a hope that there'll be a seed that takes. And so as you put away, I please, I I beg you right now, don't be comfortable. Let's pray to the Lord. And let's ask him if something needs to change in us as it concerns the way that we sow seed. If a perspective needs to change, a, a, a way in which we work needs to change, our faith needs to change. And if you need, again, once again, if you need to come up here and grab a hold of a counselor, Simply to pray that your life might be fruitful. 
then that is worth that prayer. If you're tired of being fruitless, then it is worth coming forward this morning and grabbing a hold of someone and saying, I am desperate to see God use me, and I'm desperate to see the seeds that I plant take root. That is worth that prayer, and it is worth your time. So let's do that right now. Counselors, come up. Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, Lord, we love you, and we thank you for this time. And Lord, we thank you for the the light that you've given us and the seed that you've given us, and we're so thankful that the seed has taken root. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone in here who recognizes that they are either rocky or thorny ground, that they would come forward today and repent and begin doing the hard work of pulling those rocks and those thorns out of the bed of their life. There are still others of us who become tired of the work of ministry. We've been, become tired of evangelism. We're worn down. We've seen too p- many people refuse. Lord, I was looking at a photo of this very retreat from three years ago, and it was every bit of one-fifth or one-sixth of the people in that photo are no longer a part of our churches. They are gone. And that is a sober thought. And that hurts. And I feel Satan working at discouraging me. But I refuse his advances. And I say to you, Lord, fill me full of faith. And teach me that it's all worth it. Deliver us from Laodicea. Deliver us from creature comforts. And make us hard as nail farmers, soil experts, willing, willing to go, willing to stop, uh, uh, to go beyond the dividing line. I pray this in Christ's name. Amen. hope that today's message encouraged you to follow Christ in his word. For more information about Kaya, for service times and information about our disciple-making ministry, please visit our website at caya.live.